0: This morning, our scripture lesson in Isaiah 29 had a couple of places that I want to particularly have us note. Um, in verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with, near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. It is is a very important uh, warning to our consciences this morning that we are very careful not to uh, know God intellectually without knowing His, Him in our hearts. And this is the constant temptation of those of us who recognize the importance of truth. I remember Dad, several years ago, Dad Taylor, um, saying to me, I don't remember the context, but he was an old man by then. And I remember him saying to me that he said, my whole life I thought what God wanted was my work. But it turns out what he wants is my love. And I'm not acting as if love and work are in opposition to each other, but I think you understand that we can work and we can have an intellectual knowledge and be entirely lacking in love and a relationship with God and with people. And so uh, I wanted to point that out. And then at the end, note what it says. It says, those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept instruction. And I exhort you this morning, uh, each Sunday as you come, humble yourself so that you're willing to be taught by me or whoever is in the pulpit. I never take this for granted. I know it's difficult. I know you know me. And so it's more difficult because you know me because you think God should have sent an angel to teach you. I'm not an angel, and so you have to humble yourself and allow a fallen man to teach you. But this is the way God chose, and there's never been a man who who has been without sin who has taught except our Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, don't criticize, but allow yourself to be instructed. Now, I'm not saying don't criticize what I say, but you know what I'm saying. All right. Now, turn with me to our text for this morning, Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39. <coughs> Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves... And the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. This is God's word. Jesus, having left the Jewish land and gone on retreat into the land of the Gentiles in the region of Tyre and Sidon, that's over on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 50 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee, he now returns to the area of the Sea of Galilee. But notice that it isn't to the west side of the Sea of Galilee that he returns, but rather to the east side. According to the parallel in Mark 7.31, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis was a region surrounding ten cities to the east of the Sea of Galilee, a region that, like Tyre and Sidon over on the Mediterranean Sea, it was a region that was populated by Gentiles. And it says in verse 29, he went up on a mountain and he was sitting there. Now, it was common for Jesus to be in the wilderness, away from the cities and villages. And there he prayed and would spend time alone with his disciples, and there he would teach the crowds. Now, what was the scene? Well, verse 30 tells us that large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. And it's interesting that this region is Gentile since we're told that Jesus healed the Gentiles. He healed their lame and crippled and blind and mute and others. So Jesus didn't allow his blessings to simply descend on the Jews. But he went out to the Gentiles and he healed the Gentiles. Earlier in this chapter, we see the story of the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, uh, we see that Jesus allows, as he puts it, the dogs to eat the crumbs that are falling from the table. That's what the woman said and Jesus acknowledged it by healing her daughter. And this list of healings here mentioned should remind us of the prophecy concerning the Messiah that's found in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened The ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Now, it's interesting to see that there is another account of the feeding of a large group of people, and that account is in one chapter earlier, it's in Matthew chapter 14. And last week after uh, we were done worshipping, a young man came up to me and asked me about uh, the two different accounts of the death of a giant named Goliath in the Old Testament. And uh, he's taking a religious studies class. And so constantly, whether it's at Indiana University or whether it's in our own personal reading, we come across places where it seems apparent that there's a discrepancy in the text of Scripture. And so scholars have often used these two accounts of the feeding of large crowds of people, uh, specifically in Matthew, found in Matthew 14 and in Matthew 15. They've used them as an example of a place where uh, it's obvious that the authors of Scripture were writing sort of glorious and fantastic accounts that would help stir the people up to have religious feelings, trust God, and, but then they're not really true. And that the details aren't important. That what's important is that all of us sort of have this cosmic sense of the well-being of the world and the fact that God will feed us, all right? And so if, if we compare these two accounts, there are many similarities and I, you don't need to look at them, but I'll tell you what they are. In Matthew 14, it says a large crowd in a desolate place. In Matthew 15, it says a large crowd on a mountain. In Matthew 14, it says he felt compassion on them. In Matthew 15, it says Jesus felt compassion on them. In Matthew 14, the disciples were not willing to take on responsibility and respond to the need of the crowd. They said, send them somewhere else. And in Matthew 15, the disciples said, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place? In Matthew 14, they all ate and were satisfied. In Matthew 15, they all ate and were satisfied. But what are the differences? Well, in Matthew 14, there are five loaves and two fish. In Matthew 15, there are seven loaves and a few small fish. Second, in Matthew 14, there were twelve full baskets Left over. And in Matthew 15, there were seven large baskets, a different word for the basket. All right, so one's 12 baskets, the other's seven large baskets. And then in Matthew 14, 5,000 men. Matthew 15, 4,000 men plus women and children. All right, now what do we have here? Do we have an error? Well, um, maybe I'm dumb. But I just laugh at things like this when people raise them as discrepancies of Scripture. Because what I'm thinking is Matthew is writing to people who were alive at that time. And it's one thing to write a century or two later, you know, when the memory is getting bad and you can argue about what the reality was. But remember, Matthew is writing at the time when people are still living. There would have been people who remembered that who read his book. Second, let's say he was writing a century later. Matthew is writing both chapters. And they're within one chapter of each other. I mean, this guy has a really bad memory or thinks people are really gullible. If he's going to write these differences within a few verses of each other, So the logical thing to think is there are two separate occurrences of a similar miracle. And if you think about Jesus and you think what you would have done, you know, you think about people camping out so they can see a Star Wars movie, right? Well, if people camp out to see a Star Wars movie, maybe they camped out to hear the Son of God preach and teach. If they were carrying into the wilderness, they're sick and they're lame and they're crippled right, carrying them, carrying them. It's hot, right? Maybe they were hanging out there. Maybe it was a regular occurrence that people would actually get hungry with Jesus. Maybe it was a regular occurrence that the disciples each time would not have faith. Just as last time I didn't have faith that the money would be given to build, so this time I'm not going to have faith, right? Maybe they had to learn the same lesson over and over again. In other words, Let's not always look at people in the past as being stupider than we are. It's probably true that they love their wives as much as we do, that they love their children as much as we do, that they love their mothers as much as we do, and it's probably also true that they had to learn the same lessons over and over again, that they got hungry in a similar way, and that they were capable of writing two chapters right next to each other and remembering what they wrote a a chapter earlier. So, no, I don't think it's a discrepancy. I don't think it's a problem. I don't think you should tremble when the professors tell you that the Bible is filled with errors. All right. Now, what is the nature of this situation? Well, the nature of it is that they have been with Jesus for three days. They've remained with me, Jesus says in verse 32, three days now, and they have nothing to eat. These people were Gentiles... The region was the Decapolis. It was a Gentile region. The name of the baskets used was Gentile. The way the people speak of Jesus' miracles indicates they were Gentiles. And how do we know that? Well, look at what it said in verse 31. It says, The crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And what? They glorified... Who? Who did they glorify? It says they glorified the God of Israel. Isn't it interesting how gods are owned by nations? One of the terrible things about the reputation of the United States, particularly in the Middle East, if you talk to missionaries there, is that the Middle East thinks of America as a Christian nation, and then it looks at the pornography that comes over our teleph- television wires and over the satellites, and they say that's Christianity. All right? But America is a Christian nation. Now, I don't, you know, I don't mean to say that America has a Christian constitution. I'm just simply saying that if people look at our nation, they say, well, America's a Christian nation. All right? Well, everyone knew that Jesus was not a God of great cosmic spirituality where all paths lead to the same place. Jesus was a prophet of the nation that said there is only one God. It was unique in the ancient world. Monotheism, right? So when Jesus did the miracles, it brought glory to the God of Israel. It brought glory to the Jewish God, all right? In the same way that you and I, when we go into the world today and profess faith in Jesus Christ, we either bring shame or we bring glory to the God that we identify with, Jesus Christ, the triune God. And so they glorified the God of Israel, Despite Jesus' firm boundaries of ministry, here we see the floodgates of his grace and mercy opened and he pours his compassion out upon the Gentiles. As prior to this, he had poured it out on the Jews. The mute spoke, the crippled regained the use of their limbs, the lame walked, the blind saw. Many other diseases were healed. Whatever the problem was, Jesus solved it. The hungry were fed the people who walked in darkness saw a great light. And this is a theme in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Even though God revealed to the Jews the nature of His being, even though He gave to the Jews His law, it was very clear in the Old Testament that the time would come when He would open up the floodgates of Revelation, when He would show Himself to all peoples in the earth. In Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Isaiah 49.6 it is, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then in Hosea 2, verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not compa- obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And so the fulfillment of these prophecies of the Old Testament is now beginning to unfold. As Jesus Christ reveals that he's not only the Lord and Savior of Israel, but also the Lord and Savior of all men. It's very interesting how we, as everybody but Bob and maybe one other of you I don't know, we're all Gentiles. We're all in the kingdom of God if we have faith in Jesus Christ because God opened it up and let the people who walked in darkness see a great light. And then, as we have seen and believed in Jesus Christ, it's interesting how we become tightwads with the compassion that allowed us in. And we only give compassion and love to our own families or to the people who are in the, our own church, or to people who are Christians. And so the very generosity of God that allowed us as Gentiles to join with the Jews, to be grafted in, that very generosity becomes an occasion for us to grow cold and for us not to have any compassion at all on those who uh, are blind and deaf and dumb and who are headed for hell with no hope in this world or the next. Verse 32, this is what I want us to focus on. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for, for, for the people. There are ten to 20,000 Gentiles around him in the mountains and hills. They're hovering. They've hung out for a long time now. There's no indication they're preparing to leave even though they've been with him for three days and are hungry. And knowing their need, Jesus' response is what? Well, Jesus responds by feeling something. Jesus does not respond by thinking something. Jesus doesn't respond by doing something. You're going to say, well, yeah, he does do something. He feeds them. I say, the first thing that's said is that he feels something. And the truth is that as maybe uh, Northern Hemisphere people, maybe uh, tight whites, uh, (laughs) uh, maybe uh, reformed, Christians, we're a little bit ambivalent in our relationship with feelings. We'd much rather think, wouldn't we? And it is true, feelings cause pain. It's painful to feel compassion, especially when you're not the Son of God and you can't snap your fingers and have these loaves and fish feed 10,000 people, all right? And yet we see that Jesus felt Compassion. And brothers and sisters, if you look through Scripture, you're going to find all through Scripture a constant emphasis on feelings. It is all through Scripture, and it's not Old Testament alone, it's also New Testament. My favorite scenes are the scenes uh, between Joseph and his family members around him being down in Egypt, and especially that tender scene of him being reunited with his father, where he throws his arms around his father and they just cry and hug and cry. Grown men, you know, second guy in the kingdom of Egypt, right? And he's just crying and hugging and crying. And that does make Reform Christians, Northern Hemisphere people, very uptight. And that's kind of demonstrativeness that you expect, you know, from people from the South, you know? I don't mean southern United States. I mean the real south, the southern hemisphere. Maybe Italians, you know. But certainly not the Brits. Jeremy's gone, so I can now talk about the Brits, you know. They don't have emotions, do they? Except when they get together with the veterans that they fought through the war with. Then it's okay to cry, right? Listen, as Christians... We need to feel the heart of God. Jesus felt compassion. And if we spend our lives trying to bestow it, you know, trying to avoid feeling anything, you know, because feelings hurt, all right, we will not be like our God. Do you understand that? You cannot try to squelch the feelings in your life and feel compassion, let alone act on your compassion. Do you understand that? You have to allow yourself to feel. I have to admit to you this morning that much of my faith in my life has been uh, worked through the issue of whether or not I am going to allow myself to feel the truth. In fact, I will tell you that the sensitivity of my feelings is much in my life of what has caused me to turn away from faith. And I remember my dad saying when he was an older man that he thought that if, we could, if God gave us a picture of the, the, the full aspect of reality in this world, he said every one of us would be in an insane asylum. In other words, feelings are painful often. Now, there are good feelings, but most of them come at Batman. You know, they don't come you know, as you're sitting around the dinner table thinking we should have devotions tonight and you don't want to do it, you know. Now, I know feelings can be dangerous. Some people are slaves to their feelings. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the truth is that Jesus felt. And you read this again and again. The shortest verse in Scripture is what? Jesus wept. Jesus, in the presence of death, was angry. Jesus in the temple cleaning it out with a whip. You can bet your booties he wasn't a Stoic then. <laughs> right? Zeal for the house of God had consumed him. And so don't ever equate Christianity and faith with Stoicism and with being uh, beyond feelings. That's, that's, that's a counterfeit. The man who knows God has the heart of God. I say man because in this case I I think it's men who are particularly tempted to cut themselves off of feelings. Now let me ask you, I've got to end, and I want to ask you, do you feel compassion for anybody, for anything? Do you feel any compassion? I think it's ironic how all the modern missions trips go to Africa, or they go to the south, or they go to Haiti, or they go anywhere other than next door. And it strikes me that we often feel that we can be prophets at things that other people do, we can be compassionate in different parts of the country or world, but we can't seem to get our act together to love the people that we're around. And yet, when it comes time to voting, our president calling himself a compassionate conservative just loses all of the sort of warm goodies that get us to vote for him. He's a compassionate conservative. all right. And I want to talk about just one place where it's obvious that we don't have any compassion, and that's at the scene of death. Having recently gone through the death of dad and watching how everybody responds afterwards, you might say, well, wait, you had all this love and all these people telling you of their love and family time. Yeah, it's particularly that where it's very clear that we lack compassion because how many of us have been around loved ones who are at the point of death and we have not cared one bit about their soul's transfer into eternity. We have cared for their bodies. We have you know, put little lozenges on their tongues so that they are, they're not thirsty. We have fed them. We have even, some of them, changed their diapers. We have done everything we can for their physical body, but we have cared not a bit about where their soul is going in eternity. Or we have lost a loved one. It has brought death into the consciousness of everyone present. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And we look at that death and we have all these family members who are at their most vulnerable that there will ever be in their lives and we are absolutely silent about the nature of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now what is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's the fear of man. That's what it is. When a preacher gets up and talks about how glorious the life of someone is, that everybody there knows that that the man was a hellion, right? What is it? The preacher completely lacks compassion. When sin is not spoken of in the presence of death, when judgment is not warned about in the presence of death, when the judgment seat of God is not mentioned in the presence of death, we do not love our loved ones. Okay? Now you say, wait, wait, this was a sermon about feeding the 5,000. What was it that got those people there? What got them there was that Jesus was teaching about sin and righteousness and judgment. And they were so hungry for truth about their souls and their lives that they spent three days without food. And then as a natural extension of Jesus loving them enough to speak of sin and righteousness and judgment, He then fed them. No surprise, is it? No surprise that the physical needs and the spiritual needs with Jesus are just seamless. He feeds them, he teaches us, he warns them, he encourages them, he says, come to me. All right. And so, as we look at what's coming up as a church, uh, as we look at the fall, as we look at people visiting, at students coming to this university, as you look at people who are in your family who are terminally ill and dying, as you look at funerals, Ask yourself, do you have compassion? Do you love anyone? Anyone? Do you love anyone? And how do you show it? Do you feel compassion for them? We must stop. It's been a full morning, and we have the Lord's Supper. But I was thinking, Is we come to this meal, how this meal itself is 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 a picture, and if the elders would come at this time, please, that this meal itself is a picture of the compassion of the Lord. Because here, in this bread and this wine, we have together the spiritual feeding of our Lord Jesus Christ and the physical feeding. Now you might say, well, it's not enough, it's not enough wine, it's not enough bread even to help us for five minutes. And there's truth to that. And yet, Jesus chose to feed us spiritually through physical sacraments. He chose to have us enter the kingdom through the sacrament of baptism. Uh, Not that baptism saves, but that this is the point of initiation. And he chose to sustain us in our faith through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Well, it shows his compassion for us that he knows that each week, or in our case, what, each month, I guess about, that we're able to come to this meal and that we're able to eat and to drink, thinking of the compassion that the Lord has for the weak and for the defenseless and for the hungry and for the, those who are not able to speak and, and those who are blind. And so let's come to this table, and I encourage you this morning that this table is not a table that is just for members of this church. The Lord Jesus Christ holds ownership of this table, and He has given it to His church. But He has not given it to individuals. He's given it to the church and her fathers, her officers. And so I encourage you to come to this table no matter what church, uh, Christian church, Bible-believing Christian church you're a member of. uh, We're happy to have you join with us. However, if you're an independent Christian who refuses...